Hello, and welcome to Through the Spectrum podcast, a mother's journey towards parenting autism. I am your host and autism mama, Patty Cake. So I know it's been a minute since I did a podcast, and that's because just like everything else with autism, um, I have to sometimes stop, reevaluate, check myself, check on my kids, and then start again. Um, and so I have been dealing with some of the things that have been coming up uh, for my children in regards to the podcast. But I am ready to start again. Um, I I know there's been a, a, a few of you that have reached out and they want to come on the podcast and I am still trying to figure that out. So I have not forgotten you. I've just been busy being an autism mama. <laughs> so sorry for that interruption. Um, but I want to continue talking about the conundrum that we as parents of children on the spectrum face in terms of accessing insurance and the red tape. Um, recently, you know, I, I was talking to a girlfriend recently and I was telling her, you know, like the one thing that I think my kids are afraid of is that somehow I'm airing their dirty laundry. And I don't look at my kids as bad kids. They're not bad kids. They're kids that had a certain set of challenges to overcome that needed specific therapies and um, access to specific medical needs or educational support. And sometimes <clears throat> during their journey and my journey, their needs caught on fire and I could not put those fires out fast enough for them. And so as a parent, you feel like you failed or you're failing or you're flailing you're trying everything you can, and I think they view themselves from that negative space sometimes, and I wish they wouldn't because I don't have bad children. Um, we have a corrupt society. Uh, we have a bankrupt government and morally and economically. Um, but my children, even though to the outward appearance, sometimes it might seem like their behavior is bad. It wasn't bad. They were just being themselves and they needed me to help them figure it out and to help them learn how to act appropriately in certain settings so that they weren't othered. Um, one of the big fears and some of my background is, is that my, my son will be misconstrued as a deviant, a, a juvenile deviant. 
and he's he's very strong physically and sometimes his behaviors come across as aggressive behavior and that's him just stimming like he's just stimming out of control and he can't control that feeling and that feeling takes over his body and the results end up being kind of extreme in terms of how to resolve the issue and at least to the outward um, community looking in would find some of the solutions and therapies that we have to use with our special children to be a little extreme. And that happened a lot while we were in California. And there, there's a common phrase in the autism community for parents and the phrase is, it's not about if, but when. And this if, but when situation is, it's not about if your child's going to need to go into a different environment or a home, but when your child will need someone else to come pick up the baggage and help you carry it. Or carry it for you, for that matter. As they get older, especially as teenagers, and especially for boys, um, it becomes overwhelming. They're getting bigger, their hormones are taking over, their prefrontal cortexes have not completely developed. They're spinning out of control and don't know how to control their triggers. They don't know how to control their um, their spaces. And so they they're jittery all the time. And sometimes the only way that they can expel some of that energy would be like, you know, a hyperactive child in a sense, you know, they've got to go out and physically move. They've got to go out and, you know, run or jumping jacks or go hiking or, um, I mean, we bought him a punching bag for him to take his frustrations out on that at one point. Um, he used to swing sticks like he was some karate student and, and you know, doing jujitsu or, you know, some kind of samurai sword scenario. Um, he needed physical movement and he needed quiet spaces. So country life is really good in that respect. Um but one of the biggest fears that I've always had for my child is something that I think all parents on the spectrum have, especially right now, is that when our children are in public, 
and they start acting in these ways, they also can't articulate verbally what's happening to them or they're too embarrassed to. And when that happens, depending on who's around, can end up in a scenario where people of authority, such as the police or teachers or therapists or doctors or store owner, whoever they're in contact with at that moment, might misconstrue their behavior for delinquency or aggressiveness that could potentially harm themselves or someone else. And in that way, people decide unilaterally outside of me what is best for my child. And we've seen on the news where, you know, there was a child that the police knew him. There was a a boy in Arizona and the police knew him. They knew he had autism. They spoke with him almost every day. Um, They were very aware of his behaviors. But they came in to check on him one time and he was in a fit of fight or flight and he grabbed a knife and they shot him dead. And those are terrifying for parents because that poor child had no intention. I guarantee it. He had no intention of hurting those police. But because of the way our society has set up our police activity and the way the police are supposed to respond and that they're not qualified psychologically to make these kind of knee-jerk decisions in, in, you know, they're, I understand they're trying to defend their lives. But when you are the parent of a child on the spectrum and you consider that this is how society approaches quote unquote bad behavior or aggressive behavior, and you have a child that is in an aggressive state because they are triggered, you are in constant panic and anxiety about when he's going to be hurt by someone. And when we lived in California, we had crisis intervention team to try to help us come up with emergency plans. They had someone that came out and talked to Anthony on a regular basis and tried to work with him about social norms and behaviors and how to deal with a, you know, a bully at school or a kid that was making fun of him or uh, what appropriate actions would be when you react to something, things like that. Like they would come in, you know, two or three times a week and just have kind of a, a heart to heart and they'd go out walking in the woods and, Anthony 
had been seeing a doctor, a neurologist, a psychologist. He was still on medication. His medication had been changed like four times. And the school was run there. They were running thin with Anthony's episodes at school. But every time, every single time they called, I came immediately. Let me come up there. I'll help. We were five minutes away. Like what's going on? I mean, teachers now, whenever I answer the phone, when a school calls, the first thing they say to me is, so-and-so's fine, but this is what I need from you. Or like they tell me that my child is fine first before they go into whatever is happening. Because it's always, for me, it's a trigger place. When the school calls, something is wrong. It always is something is wrong. And this particular day, Anthony was supposedly exhibiting self-harming behaviors. And for whatever reason, the decision without my approval or consideration or even a phone call to me was made to call the police and have him picked up and taken in to the hospital for psych services. And they call that a 5150 hold. So the school, without my knowledge, called the police on my son and had him arrested and had him taken to the hospital on a 72-hour hold for psych. And I was, I went nuts. I, I, I did not understand how they could do that without letting me know. Like there had never been a time when they had called us, if Anthony was acting in a certain way for us to work through the problem together. I didn't understand where they had taken him. Because, you know, we were still relatively new to the area. And uh, I literally didn't know. Like, they wouldn't tell me. They called me about 20 minutes after the fact to let me know that they did not need me to come pick up my child. That my child had already been picked up and arrested by the police and taken to the hospital. But they weren't sure which hospital. And that crisis intervention would be involved and they would get in touch with me when it was, when they were ready for me. Meanwhile, my son is in a state of fight or flight. He's terrified. He is stemming. I can't get to him because I don't even know where he's at. He has no idea. I don't know where he's at. For all I know, he might think I'm the one that called the police on him, in which that was not the fact. And all of these things are happening, and I don't even know how to find my son. And it was four hours of calling and trying to figure out who I needed to talk to until one of my friends that I babysat for worked at the hospital in the emergency intake. And she called me and said, Anthony's here. He's fine. 
I just want to let you know he's here. He's safe. And it was like, at least I knew where he was at that point. But they wouldn't even let me come up and see him. To let him know or to bring him anything that he might need to help calm him down or, you know, cause he has stress balls and, and weighted blankets and, um, we can do squeezing exercise. There's so many things that can calm him down in an appropriate way, but they decided how to handle it because they apparently knew more than I did. I finally got to my son. They decided to keep him on a 72-hour hold. They sent him up to a mental health facility up in uh, in a San Jose. And I went up as soon as I could. But at that time, during all that time, whenever they took him and I couldn't see him for like a week, um, I was looking for answers. Anthony needed a day treatment program. He needed somewhere where he could find respite from the chaos of our home. What he needed was day treatment where someone worked with him one-on-one to help him overcome his internal fight or flight triggers and responses. Um, to calm him down and to help him understand that, you know, it was going to be okay. And at that time, because we had so many children with so many needs, I could not give him that one-on-one care that he needed that way, which is why we had crisis intervention and why we had, there were so many things we had that were involved. And during that time, I called everywhere, everywhere, looking for a special school program or um, a, a home, like a, um, a home for autism or um, any kind of program that would help support him socially, emotionally, educationally, um, psychologically you know, and give him what he needed at that time. And what I was told was my options in California were either foster care, which did not make any sense to me because how could he go to a foster home with a bunch of other children and get the care that he needed? He already had a home that loved him with other children that he could not find peace in. And the other option was juvenile detention. And I thought, he's not a delinquent. He hasn't broken any laws. He hasn't hurt anyone. He's threatened to because he was angry or in a fit of fight or flight. But he never acted on any of that. And I just couldn't understand how they would put him in a juvenile detention center. Like, how is that going to help him? That's only going to send him down the wrong road in the long run. And that's when my parents called me and told me that they would be willing to take him. They'll take custody. They'll take over his IEP. He can come live with them. 
And that was a really, really hard decision for me to make. But at that time, what I saw while he was away was that the other children in the house started coming out of their shell. So not only was Anthony making everyone in the house walking on eggshells because they were just waiting for the next accident to happen or bomb to go off for Anthony, you know, the next moment that the chaos would erupt for him. But they were afraid to to be themselves because they might offend Anthony in some way indirectly. And... So I brought that to Anthony as a, as a choice. I let him make that choice at the hospital. And he, he decided that, yes, he wanted to do that. And so we made arrangements. Um, my parents became his guardians for the last three years of his high school. They lived on a farm with 100 acres. They did not have any other children in the home. The only other person in the home was my grandmother, uh, they were taking care of her. Um, he was out in the middle of the woods. It was quiet. He had plenty of laborious activity to do during the day. Uh, my dad got him involved in weightlifting. He got him, you know, rifle lessons um, so that he had, you know, uh, activity to focus in. Um, he He got involved in some things that were positive for him. Uh, he, he was able to ride his bike. He loved riding his bike. Uh, they got him a dog. And the dog really helped Anthony in a lot of ways. But because of Anthony going there, and because of my dad was already a SPED teacher previously, and my brother was special education, so they already understood the IEP process my dad wrote IEPs. He taught IEP children. They already knew what he needed. And that's the only way that I felt comfortable relinquishing my parental advocacy for my autistic son to someone else. It was really, really, really hard. It was... It was one of the hardest decisions I've had to make as a parent. But I will say that by making that decision, um, my other children began to blossom more and become, I could be more focused on their needs and wants and there was one less IEP for me to deal with. Um, also, Anthony blossomed. He ended up graduating with an advanced diploma. And um, he has, you know, a job that he loves. He, he got into college, but because of, um, because of COVID, that all got messed up. But you know, he, he did really well and he's still doing really well now. So if you are sitting there right now, struggling with the question of 
do we pull that trigger? Do we relinquish our parental rights? Think about it this way. Your job as the parent of all children is to get them where they're supposed to go, to get them to the adult stage in life. You may not be equipped with all the tools. And so sometimes it's okay to get help where you need it because the help that they're getting is the direct help that they need. Not everyone knows everything. And so sometimes we have to share the load. And that's why it takes a village. And I will say that because of doing that, and I'm not saying that there wasn't emotional trauma for me and my son in that regard. He blamed himself, beat himself up for a while. But I've resolved a lot of that for him, I think. Uh, because he knows how much I love him and he knows that I did it because I felt like that's what was best for him. And so whenever I talk to him and he knows that I've never looked at him as being a bad kid or doing devious things or that that's not what it was or being, you know, blatantly disrespectful. It was, he couldn't control that aspect of himself. And I think that as a parent, sometimes it is necessary to say, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I don't know this but this is what you need. And so we're going to go to where you can get this. And so as a parent, believe me when I tell you that sometimes it's necessary to give up that parental control and let someone else carry the weight for you for a little while. It's good for your health. It's good for their health. Like if they're not finding peace in the home, how are they ever going to get out of the cycle? And if you can't find peace in the home, how are you ever going to help them? So as hard as that choice might be, and as hard as it is to find something that is an appropriate setting, it really, really is hard. I was very blessed that I had the parents I have. Had I not had my parents, I don't know what I would have done. Because he's not a juvenile delinquent. And he did not need foster care. And those were my options. Which just blew my mind. You know, recently there was a little boy here in Virginia. And he was six years old. He took a gun to school. He's special education. He shot the teacher. Everyone is up in arms about this, and, and I am too in a lot of ways. But what I read a lot 
in the comments that people make beyond the, you know, why did a child have a gun is why is that special needs kid in classes with my regular kid? I'm here to tell you that our special needs children are not isolated in education. They are sitting right beside your children. There is no special school for them. And if there is, that school is so expensive that the average person can't afford it. Normal, everyday, walking around. I mean, whenever you, whenever you think about one in 63 children are diagnosed on the spectrum, and when Anthony was diagnosed, it was one in 68. Now Anthony's an adult. So all those one in 68 children are walking around as adults now. And there are more coming. You need to adjust yourself to the needs of them. We've done the hard job of raising them and teaching them the appropriate behaviors that they have to transform themselves into dealing with. Like we literally have to change our children. When they're born, they, autistic children do not automatically think or feel the way that you or I do. We have to teach them how to act appropriately. But you need to find the compassion in your heart to tolerate their differences. It's something I've said quite a bit to friends of mine and people that I come in contact with is our children don't come with a sign. You're not going to know what they look like. There's no special affect that shows that they're different. And I know everybody is going through something. But society needs to make appropriate space for allowing people to be themselves. You know, autism knows no race, no gender, no religion. It affects every aspect of our society. One in 63 children are diagnosed on the spectrum. That is a lot. That is alarming. And there is no cure. I know that there's all this, you know, autism speaks and autism awareness and light up blue for autism. And that's all beautiful and wonderful and grand. None of the money they raise goes to help support these families. They're looking for a cure. I'm here to tell you there is no cure. This is the way our children were born. They have to be taught. The cure is therapy. The cure is lots and lots of therapy. Occupational therapy, physical therapy, social behavioral therapy, um, the little fidgets, those fidget spinners that everybody's playing with and 
Those are things that are tools to help them. But they're not a quick fix. There's no on-off switch. You know, I was in anthropology class in college and I I learn very interconnectedly. Um, I'm an interdisciplinary learner. And whenever I was sitting in anthropology class, he was talking about um, some monkeys that were looking for, they, they eat a specific kind of rock. They literally look out, they seek out this rock in Africa. And this rock has a specific mineral in it. And everybody's like, what? Like they eat rocks, you know? And I was like, oh, that's like pica. Because my child had pica. And she would eat dirt or chalk or anything that was not food. Like I had, I literally have to say not food because she will put things in her mouth that are not edible or should not be edible because her body is seeking out a vitamin or mineral she is deficient in. And then the professor was like, yeah, like, yeah, I guess that is like pica, you know, or he was talking about a set of twins that were born and um, they were born to a family in Germany. There were two, they had four children total. They had two that were nonverbal children and two that were completely normal. And so they started doing studies on these two that were nonverbal. And what they found was, is on our DNA, in our chromosomes, they, there are certain chromosomes that are often on whenever you look at like, whether you get blue eyes or brown hair or uh, how dark your melanin is, things like that. There's these different markers on our DNA that are turned off and on. And what they found was that these particular children, they could speak, but they could not articulate. So they could mimic speech, but they could not make their own thoughts. So they were considered nonverbal, which is how Sersha thinks. And he said that their FOXP2 gene was turned off on their DNA chromosome. And I immediately was like, excuse me, are they studying that in reference to nonverbal autistic children? Now, not that there's a way for them to go back in and turn that FOXP2 gene on. Their FOXP2 gene is just off. He wasn't sure, but that's the way my brain works. You know, that's the way I think is like, okay, well, there's this generalized thing, but let's make it more specific. And in the process of dealing with all of these insurance companies and society and school districts and disability and everything, I came up with a plan. But it is so ginormous that I just can't even find how to start it. So hear me out. This is my plan. I wanted to call it the Sersha Center after Sersha. And what it is, is the day your child gets diagnosed on the spectrum, you are sent to the Sersha Center. At the Sersha Center, 
you fill out all the paperwork. It's like a, a large intake. You fill out insurance information. You fill out financials. You fill out medical history. You fill out, you know, the all the different psychology um, testing that they have to do. You you go through all this intake process. Once that intake process is done, they determine what you qualify for. So if you qualify for Medicaid or if you qualify for disability or if you qualify for uh, occupational therapy or physical therapy or any of these therapies, ABA therapy. And then when you do the intake, they start the, the family, the whole family gets involved and they start the family on the program. The program has like a mandatory meeting once a month for the family to come in for group therapy because I feel like siblings take a lot of the brunt. The the siblings that are not on the spectrum, they get a lot of the leftovers. Mom leftovers. Because we are so exhausted from trying to get the bare needs of our one child fulfilled. That we are too tired to handle the ones that don't need special things. And they kind of get left in this, they're figuring it out without support scenario. And it's not that we don't love them. But I do know that they are kind of left to their own devices if they're doing okay. If they're capable of, you know, going to school every day and making the grade, they don't get support the same way that the child with special needs gets. And there's a lot of guilt there for the parent because, or at least as the mom or the caregiver, you're watching it and you're like, I just can't get to that. And I'm so sorry. I want to but I've got this other thing and it's, it's on fire and I have to put that fire out. And so they feel neglected. So there would be sibling support and then the children that need the special therapies would go into different classes and one day they do occupational therapy and then they rotate out and they do educational therapy and then they do rotate out and they do social behavioral therapy or emotional behavioral therapy or, you know, they do all these different therapies within the center that they need. And then the adults get trained on the proper ways to approach what the child needs at home, how to be a caregiver, what like you can go to school to be ABA trained, but the parents that these children are born to are not board certified or trained in, in, you know, managing these children. We're just winging it. We're trying to do our best, but we are literally just winging it. So in order for us to learn how to help them, we have to go to a class there as well and learn the things that are going to be most beneficial, whether it be how to bathe your child. I mean, Sersha throws a fit every time I give her a shower. It's a fight. It is literally a fight. Screaming, 
the whole thing. Like it's, it's a fight the whole time. So how do I bathe and keep hygiene up with this child or brush her teeth? But how to, how to service our own children, how to care for them properly so that we can get them to the next steps. And then what are the next steps? So you kind of go through this whole intake where everybody is come together. You've got your insurance components, you've got your um, social security services, your disability services, you've got your insurance, you've got your financials. So whatever support you need is all from this one place and they determine all of your eligibility based on those things. And then inside this center, it can also be environmentally conscious. So the children would do well from learning to grow food, creating a little, you know, um, farm, vegetable, you know, area that they can go and dig in the dirt and plant their own vegetables and food. And that food is what feeds them when they need lunch or, you know, and then um, to get all the components working, um, there would be different professors that would be in charge of the different therapy environments where they would teach them. And then the, the students from the colleges that are studying ABA therapy or, you know, special, special education services, things like that, they would come in and fulfill their credit hours by teaching the children and coming up with therapies. And that could be like a thesis for an advanced grant student, or, you know, whenever you're working on your master's doctorate program, like it could be this really unique, wonderful thing that we need. I mean, you could even have, you know, students that are looking into like human services degrees where they can come in and be the intake or learn the social services aspect of it or the social security disability aspect of it. Or like it could be like thing, something that it, you know, generates its own income by these study grants and um, it, it kind of pays for itself that way. But then the families are fully supported and get everything that they need in order to properly care and give back to their children. I know that's a pipe dream. I know that's crazy. I know it sounds nuts, but just imagine how wonderful that would be. Like that not only did you get this diagnosis, but you also got answers Instead of having to go through all these hoops and all this red tape, trying to figure out what your child needs and where to go and find it or how to access it or getting denied for it. Like the child just gets approved because the child's autistic. And so that's it. It's automatic. It should be automatic. It shouldn't be that my child gets denied for services on the basis that she's not autistic enough or he's not autistic enough. That doesn't even make sense. It's, it's really mind-blowing as a parent. 
anyway, those are just some thoughts that I have and I'll continue telling my stories, but I think I'm kind of done for today. I hope you enjoyed the show.